And we are live. It's that time again. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. The weekend is here. It's been quite the week in the media. Big show tonight. A lot to address, a lot to establish. A lot of guests in attendance. Guys, I want to introduce my first guest who's with us right now. We have Lee Habib. Uh, sir, glad you could join us. It's great to have you here. You've had quite the resume, quite the, uh, quite the background in life. Uh, first and foremost, though, tell us about yourself, how it all started, all that fun stuff. Sure. I mean, I, I grew up with a father who was a history teacher. I also grew up Lebanese and and I experienced a lot of the stuff we're experiencing now on college campuses, which I'll get to a bit later. What yeah. my latest Newsweek column was about was campus McCarthyism from the left. I, we had always read about McCarthyism from the right. The one or two years it reared its ugly head in the Republican Party and a narrow part of the party. And the left has never forgiven us for it. But meanwhile, the left's been practicing McCarthyism on campuses as since I was in college and graduated in 1983, went to University of Virginia Law School with Laura Ingram, and it was in its full ascent at the nation's top law schools when I was there in the 1980s, late 80s, with critical race theory being introduced and all the good stuff that we're now really, frankly, experiencing in our entire K-12 and college educational system. It took them 40 years. They were relentless. We were asleep. We let them seize these citadels of power. We didn't, they didn't steal it from us. We gave them the schools. And some of us re raised the flag and we were sort of laughed off by conservatives. Oh, it's not a big problem. Uh, well, you know, we're not laughing now. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And um, speaking of your resume, you know, you're talking about Laura Ingram. I know you were a producer on that show. I know now you're the vice president of content for Salem Media. And you've done a lot of stuff, man. Well, you know, I, I was around a lot, a lot of talented people. Went to law school with Laura. We literally, Sunday just produced the show. I, I founded it with her. We started it. We made affiliate calls. Laura broke the glass ceiling. You got to remember, before Laura in politics, the only kind of Lauras you had or women you had in radio, syndicated radio, were Dr. Laura or, you know, somebody like Delilah. And so we had to, Laura broke that glass ceiling. And uh, it was tough, but she, she was a superstar. And then I went over to Salem and I'm still there working with, you know, some of the great talent in the conservative space. But it was Dr. Bill Bennett who really pushed me to do Our American Stories, which is a nationally syndicated show and podcast that's killing it for iHeart. iHeart picked it up two years ago, but has put it nationwide in the evenings. And then because it's not political and it just tells the stories of America each and every night, great historians, no opinion, no dialogue, not even interviews. It's just straight David McCullough or straight uh, Henry Ford historian or straight uh, Stephen Ambrose from World War II. And people have just had an insatiable appetite for learning more about a good country and a great country that, frankly, uh, is not being told in the schools. And I think a lot of conservatives don't even know that George Washington surrendered his commission. We're so busy defending the Republican Party, so busy doing shirts and skins that, you know, he, the, the liberals are bad, the, the, the conservatives are good, that we, we've sort of given up the whole idea of making sure we know what we're fighting about and what we're fighting over. And it's not just taxes, you know, and it's not just, uh, you know, federalism. 
There's, there's a lot of other things we're fighting about. And there are a lot of other things that we are, uh, an inheritance that I think we're actually fighting about. The inheritance of what our, our forebearers brought us and our history is, I think, what we're fighting about. The left knows we're fighting about history. That's why they've developed the 1619 Project. I think we always think we're fighting about the present. The, the left is very smart. Orwell talked about this a lot. He always said that the left understood, the far left, that the battles for the future are battles over the past. And if you can rewrite the past, if you can make young people hate their country, they're going to vote for the people who want to transform the country. And if you train people that the country on balance is good and, and capitalism is more virtuous than socialism, it's not perfect, but it's better. Well, then the kids who hear from politicians who love capitalism and the older people are going to vote for those people. So that's sort of why I, I decided to do Our American Stories, which is fastest growing show, even faster than when I did Laura's show. Um, there's an insatiable appetite for getting above and beyond the back and forth and then being able to have a young person say to another young person, hey, Jefferson owned slaves, but he also tried to free them. He also pushed the Northwest Ordinance, which abolished slavery in all of those new states, the Western states of Michigan and Ohio, which was a big deal in the world, because at that time, everybody owned slaves. So you know, giving people not just the tools to fight, but the stories to tell, and that's just true with Israel, too. We can't just say Israel's good. We have to say, who is Israel? What is the nation about? Right. How many people who are Arabs, Palestinians, I'm an Arab, how many Palestinians are in the Knesset? Well, right. there are 11 right now. There have been Palestinians who've been on the Supreme Court in Israel. Gays can vote in Israel. Atheists can vote in Israel. Name right. me another Middle Eastern country where gays and atheists are going to have a good time of it, or Christians or Jews for that matter. And now we're not arguing Israel good, Palestinians bad. We're taking the argument to a discussion on an entirely different plane where people go, wow, I didn't know that. Or, oh, that's, that's a story I didn't know. And so I always have thought that arguments can only get you so far. Stories, uh, I think, can get you further. Right. And I, I agree with you. Um, that whole war scenario, it's definitely a two-way street. You know, they're both provoking each other. They're both, you know, creating just these awful, chaotic uh, situations. I mean, this is so unnecessary. It does not need to happen. This could have been prevented easily. Well, you know, in the end, it, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Arabic and I, yeah. I've grown up with this. My grandfather left Lebanon and told me why. Right. And he predicted what would happen and who would be the culprits. He said the majority of Muslims that I lived around, because Beirut was a truly Western city. It was the kind of city that had a lot of French influence, a lot of European influence. Muslims sat alongside Christians who sat alongside Jews in cafes and they didn't blow each other up. Right. But there was this small radical sect. And in 1979, when the Iranian Revolution occurred, that's when things really changed in the Middle East. And then Iran ended up funding groups like Hezbollah and Hamas and doing their dirty work and doing their bidding. Lebanon is gone now. It has been destroyed. It's been taken over by Hezbollah. It's been blown to bits. Christians have been driven out of the Middle East in mass. And yeah. so there is something worth fighting over. The problem is, who is, who is the fight going to be between? And my grandfather always told me the fight will be among and between Arab Muslims. The Arab Muslims who want to move towards modernity and freedom and human rights. And the Muslims who want to go back into the 17th century, who are a small minority, but they're violent and they're loud.
And in the end, he predicted that there would have to be a great war within the Islamic and Muslim community for the Muslims to purge their own, the way Rudy Giuliani had to get rid of the Italian mafia, the way the, the, the Christians had to purge anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism out of America. We hated Catholics in this country, Protestants. And the, and the Catholics were, were, were really discriminated against in, yeah. in Ireland. I mean, look what happened to Ireland as a result of British policies towards that country. So there's been hatred around the world forever. The Japanese and the Chinese hated each other. The, yeah. the Iroquois hated one another. And what's happened in the last 40 to 50 years is never have more people been getting along in more ways, in more places. And there are certain groups that want to blow that up. They want the chaos. They want the discord. And some of those are radical Muslims. And some of them are radical progressives. And they're now banding together. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing on college campuses. LGBTQ people side by side with people supporting Hamas, the very people who would throw those same gay people off of a roof if those gay people step foot anywhere in the Middle East. And Lee, do you notice how there's quite a few people that say, and this is wrong, you know, especially in, you know, because I'm a conservative, but, you know, I, I've always voted Republican, but I do call balls and strikes. People in our party, a lot of them say, if you, you know, are pro-Palestine or you say anything good about Palestine, then you're anti-Israel, you're anti-Semitic. And, and I'm like, no. And they try to say, you're pro-terrorist, you're pro-Hamas if you say anything nice about Palestine. They try to make it out to be like Hamas is 100% of Palestine. But what they fail to mention is over 60% of Palestine is little children. And then I hear the nonsense, well, they voted for this. Oh, really? These children voted for Hamas? I don't think so. Come on. This is crazy. Hamas is a very small percentage. I'm not denying that they have a lot of territory they have a lot of power they have a lot of control i get that but they they're a very small percentage compared to the whole palestinian population and here's what i can promise you roy as an arab and i, I wrote a column a year ago about this right and, and i promise you this and ask any arab off the record you can't even speak about your support of israel um the the degree and depth of arab anti-semitism is the equivalent of nazi anti-semitism i promise you and there are very few Arabs who go on the record stating that Israel has a right to exist. Not that Israel is perfect. Criticism of Israel does not make you an anti-Semite. Right. But saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, you poll most Palestinians and ask them how much of Israel do they have a right to keep, and they will say none. All of them. I had to dissociate myself from half of my Lebanese family because of this nonsense, this rubbish. Israel has been turned into the evil empire of the Middle East over a half century of Protocol of the Elders of Zion, a book that every Arab kid reads practically from kindergarten, depicting Jews as devils, not worthy of the space, depicting Jews as occupiers of a space they were kicked out of in the eighth century by the Ottomans. It's complicated. Many Jews fight for the freedom of Palestinians. Almost no Palestinians fight for the freedom and existence of Israel. This is the difference, Rory. Not that there aren't poor innocent kids who are dying there, but they are dying at the hands of Hamas and these wicked ideologies, the way innocent German kids were bombed to bit, to burn, burned and bombed to bits in Berlin, and innocent kids in Hiroshima were, were, in the end, burned and bombed to death 
because of the radical and wicked ideologies of an emperor, an emperor who used his own women and children. I mean, this is how sordid the Japanese emperor was, and this is how sordid Hamas is. And I equate them the same. They literally, literally use women and children, use them to die so they can get credibility in the Arab world. You can't get sicker than Hamas's ideology. I pray and cry for those kids, those young Palestinian kids who never knew any better and didn't have a, had, had every right to live. But I got to tell you, if I'm a, an Israeli citizen, just like I was an American, if I were an American city in 1943 or 44 or a British citizen, I'd burn and blow up a Berlin to the to the depths. And not because I, I don't feel bad about those poor German kids. I do. But this is war and war has consequences. And until there are people in Palestine who will say Israel has a right to be here, we have every right to criticize Israel, but Israel has a right to exist. When I hear that, really hear that, that's when I'll know the Arab world has reformed. And by the way, the Arab world was moving that way. You know, Donald Trump had just signed the Abram Accords. Five Muslim nations said, let's normalize relations with Israel. And then we were about to do this with Saudi Arabia. That's why 10-7 happened. There are radical Muslims and, and also just straight terrorists who don't want to see peace with Israel. Israel wants to see peace. They've tried time and again. Heck, we gave Arafat almost everything. Clinton tried it. Bush tried it. We've been trying to give the Arab world peace in Palestine and a space for Palestinians forever. They don't want to give a space. And this, by the way, it's a small group, Hamas, but they have tremendous influence in Palestine. And, and as someone who knows the region deeply, has relatives in the region, I can only tell you, it breaks my heart to hear the level of anti-Semitism uh, in, in, in the Arab world. And yet most of those kids in the Negev desert who were killed, those kids were there for a reason. They were completely sympathetic to the Palestinian plight. They were probably the fiercest critics of Netanyahu. And what did they get for that sympathy? The sympathy for the Palestinians? They got murdered. They got butchered. So did their kids and their mothers. So it, it, these aren't moral equivalencies. And it's sad when innocents die. But we got to always ask ourselves, who is Hamas? That's first. Second, what influence do they have in the region? It's it's a lot, mostly by force. And third, what are the what is the average heart and mind of the average Palestinian think about Jews' right to their homeland too? And you will find deep down inside, they don't think the Jews should be there. Don't you agree that Netanyahu is extremely corrupt? I don't know. I don't, I don't, until people are prosecuted, Rory. Um, I have no opinion. Look, my favorite story I've told in Our American Stories is a wonderful one by John, by, about John Adams. The British were stationed in America. They were actually quartering in our homes in Boston. Um, they were doing what they wanted with us. They were raising taxes. The Redcoats were hated by the Americans. Well, one day there's a shootout and some Redcoats have shot some, some British colonists. And instantly the mob comes out and says, these corrupt British deserve to hang. And everybody assumed they were corrupt. And John Adams said, no, this is America. We have to prove a criminal charge. And everybody is innocent, including these redcoats, until we can prove it. Well, guess what? A trial and a gathering evidence proved the redcoats shot in self-defense. John Adams saved three British troops from hanging. I don't know whether Netanyahu is corrupt. I hate political prosecutions. 
I don't like right. them of Trump. I don't like, I didn't like them of Clinton. I hate them. We have elections. Right. Once the president starts getting charged with criminality and it's not murder or something else, I don't trust the charge until you can prove it in a real and true court, not a banana republic court, like an actual court. The Duke rape case, I had friends involved in that case. Everybody said the boys were guilty. They weren't. The prosecutor went to jail for sabotaging the case. The lead cop shot himself because he lied, because he wanted the conviction, because he liked the narrative that those damn rich white kids took advantage of that poor black girl, and it wasn't true. So the biggest thing I love about being American is the presumption of innocence for OJ and for everybody else, but particularly, Rory, for you, right? Because if it were your kid and everybody said, your kid's corrupt, you'd say, prove it. Right. I don't want your opinion about the corruption of a human being. I treat all charges as if they were against me. Right. And I don't want people charging me of being a racist. I've been called it many times. Right. Ridiculous. I've been called a bigot, a sexist. None of it's true. And I know why people level those charges. Right. Because they want to harm the person who they disagree with. Just yeah. take Netanyahu who on his policies. But don't charge him with corruption when you don't know if he's corrupt. He's been charged. And until he's convicted, I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me. And given the fact that they have perhaps the greatest intelligence agency in the world, do you have your suspicions and wonder? No. About... You, know what a better, you know what a better apparatus? The United States of America. Oh, you I... already knew what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Well, of course. Look, I, I have friends who spend their life. I went to UVA Law School, and a lot of guys went to Quantico, went into the FBI, went into counterterrorism. And they yeah. all tell me the same story. You don't know how hard this job is. First of all, we believe in civil rights. We try. Second of all, there are threat assessments coming in from all over the place. All of them, all the time. We have the CIA, the NSC, the NSA. We have the United States military. We have the New York Counterterrorism Bureau. My buddy was a high-ranking member. All of them were worried about an attack. They just didn't know how, why, or where. And yes, there was intelligence about, but nobody connected it. Not on purpose. Believe me, not on purpose. There is zero chance that Netanyahu did this on purpose. Zero. You'd have to prove to me that that happened. Not, oh, they missed it. Human nature is that we're going to miss things that, in retrospect, seem obvious. Let me tell you what wasn't obvious. No one really thought a bunch of kids would throw a huge party right next to the, in a desert, right next to a space that is easily and most susceptible to invasion. And no one was paying attention to that party, to all those kids gathering in the middle of the desert like Burning Man. Right. It was like Burning Man in the middle of nowhere. There is no security if something goes wrong at Burning Man. I mean, imagine if Burning Man went sour. People would say, well, where are the cops? What do you mean, where are the cops? Have you ever been to Burning Man? There are no cops. That's why they do Burning Man in the middle of a desert. Right. So, no, there wasn't a conspiracy. He didn't do it on purpose. What Hamas did is Hamas did it on purpose. It picked a vulnerability like terrorists do because that's what they're good at. And by the way, what, what can, well, the worst thing that can happen to is a security establishment is they start to think they're great. It's like the, the, the moment that Nick Saban in Alabama think they're the best football team, what happens the next week? They get their ass handed to them. That's what happened to this so-called Israeli intelligence. They took a break, by the way, on a high holiday. On a high holiday, a bunch of Jewish kids decided to celebrate 
Burning Man style, not exactly high holiday celebration, no, a very different kind of Dionysian celebration, a very progressive celebration. They got killed for it. These kids who sympathize with the plight of Palestinians were murdered for it, murdered for it. Now, those are the rich ironies that I find here. And you can like Netanyahu, you can not like him. You can like Trump or you can not like Trump. But once we start getting into these conspiracy theories, I just always say, prove it. I mean, we can't just, again, say these things. They're wretched things. It's like the people who, to this day, say Roosevelt knew about Pearl Harbor and he just let it happen. I mean, just whatever, you know. Whatever. Can, we, can we also make the argument, though, that these people at the top, you know, being at the highest possible level, I mean, when you're president or leader of your country, it doesn't get any higher than that. I mean, these people are exempt. Um, regardless, Republican, Democrat, it seems like they can break the law and get away with it. I mean, do we have, are there exceptions? Have there been people prosecuted? Sure, but rarely. I mean, we see some of the worst type of crimes just go under the rug. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm not for hiding crimes. I'm just saying you have to, you have to prove them. No, I agree. I, I agree though. But what do you think about what I just said? Do you think there's truth to that when you're at the highest level, like the law doesn't apply regardless? Oh, of I think the law should apply. It's just, no, but do you think it, do you think it does? I mean, I, I know you think it should, but do you think it does currently? I, I don't know because I don't know what they're really doing. I mean, again, I, I would, you're, you're assuming there's a crime. I, 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 deep in my soul, I will not charge any human being with a crime until I can prove it. Right. And then they have to get convicted. I can't just arrest them. I can't just indict them. Look, well, you know one right. thing. I have a bunch of friends who work in the Innocence Project, okay? Mm -hmm. Right? And nobody's against the Innocence Project. These are people who are convicted by a jury of their peers. And the most you know, prominent reason for people being convicted is a misidentification in an ID case. And so now that we have DNA, we go back. And I mean, we freed hundreds and hundreds of people from death row. Everybody was sure those people were guilty. They got a criminal trial and they still weren't guilty. So the presumption of innocence for me is the is the undergirding of Western civilization, frankly. Without it, we are tribal. And if we don't like people, we just start to go out. Again, that was another reason my grandfather left Lebanon. Too much tribalism. If you were in the wrong party or in the wrong family. And by the way, I have friends from Uganda. You're in the wrong family. You're dead. You're in the wrong tribe. What I love about America is I, I don't care if you're a neo-Nazi. I'm going to go march for your right to speak. I right. don't care what your opinion is. I'm going to march for the right to speak because the next thing you know, someone will take away my right to speak. We need more protection by all of us of all of our civil liberties, including the right not to charge people specifically or generally, because it's an easy thing to do. And it's a way to take your policy differences with somebody or your ideological differences and then trans them into, transfer them into shame, punishment, or exclusion, expulsion, or actual prison time. And those things, witch trials, political trials, are far more worrisome for me that happen in banana republics than in the constitutional Republicans, republics. A lot of our senators and congressmen getting away with slightly shady things. In other words, would you rather live in a banana republic and its set of problems in which there are political trials every other day with people getting tried by their political opposites or in America where nobody gets tried. But you know what? 
better that than the opposite. Because once, look, once Clinton got in, impeached, and I told all of my Republicans, do not impeach this guy. We did anyway. What dumbasses. Because the next thing you know, they impeached Trump twice. And now we're impeaching Biden. And, the, and I go, no, we have elections. If you don't like the guy, vote him out. I hate impeachments. I hate witch trials. I hate four-year special prosecutors on you till they find the crime. It's so freaking un-American. If I put a prosecutor on you for five years so they could find a crime, you wouldn't like it. And that's what's been happening to Trump. It's what we did to Clinton. It's what the Democrat, what Republicans did to Clinton. It's what happened uh, under the uh, uh, Bush administration with, with, with Iran-Contra. And it was bad, but I just hate these political prosecutions because one side gets theirs, then the other side gets theirs. And it just feels like banana republic crap to me. I'm not saying politicians are innocents. And if they commit an obvious crime, they should go to jail. Torricelli, I mean, Bob Torricelli, we've had uh, people go to jail. We had governors go to jail. To our, we have a, uh, a, a Michigan city councilwoman went to jail. I mean, we have actual politicians who go to jail for committing crimes and corruption. Mayor Nagin in New Orleans is in jail. We, the public just doesn't, we don't get much reporting on the many times we've indicted people for political corruption and proven it. So I'm not against uh, politicians being proven of crimes. But what I don't like is before there's an indictment, before there's a trial, us saying, you know, so-and-so is guilty of a crime. So, yes, politicians aren't exempt from being criminals. They're human beings. Priests can be criminals. Teachers can be criminals. Hosts can Look, worry. Some talk show hosts are criminals. Um, right. But I'm going to assume you're innocent even if some talk show hosts are. I'll yeah. give you the benefit of doubt and presume you're innocent. I want to ask you about Joe Biden, though, sure. um, in regards to this whole impeachment. I agree with you. I think it's a waste of time. I think it's political theater. It never really goes anywhere. I mean, there are scenarios where it, it has, like Bill Clinton. But but where did that go? I mean, think right. about that. He was still president. Yeah, exactly. It, it really only stabbed Republicans uh, and really screwed them over. It, you know, it didn't hurt the Democrats. It just made the Democrats more popular. Yeah. And um, this will might make doing all this to Trump. I mean, look, I I was in New York the day that the person running for prosecutor of the city said, "If I'm elected, I'll get Trump." And I went, "I'm living in a banana republic, right?" And then they got Trump, right? Now he has four indictments, and all of my Latin American friends in Miami, Dominicans and Cubans are going, oh, I'm voting for Trump now. This is the stuff that happened in Cuba. I left Cuba because of this stuff. So it's interesting, just as we made Clinton more popular, we Republicans, I'm promising you, Democrats are making Trump more popular in places where this garbage happens, and a lot of the people in the black community are starting to sympathize with Trump. They're going, huh. What kind of power is he touching that they're trying to keep him off the ballot, right? What's that about? Maybe I got to look into that guy because maybe he's so good that he's being prosecuted. So, you know, there's just big parts of me that just hate. All, I don't want to go after Joe Biden. You know, if his son committed a crime, well, then his son, should, if he didn't pay taxes, he should just like get the, the, the typical fine that everybody else gets. He shouldn't go to jail if the last 80 guys who did what Joe Biden's son did, did the same thing. I don't want Joe Biden's son getting treated any worse than a than, than Donald Trump's son. Right. It shouldn't matter. It's un-American. My first column in my whole life was an attack 
on Republicans for going after Bill Clinton in the impeachment. I said the word special in front of the prosecutor. Word prosecutor is a terrible thing. And then when prosecutors go after a person, president or not, they should do it with specificity. It shouldn't be an open prosecution any more than it should be an open prosecution on Rory. They started with cattle futures. They went into Whitewater. They tried five different things. Ken Starr was there two years. He had 40 or 50 lawyers with him. And finally, they got him for lying under oath, lying under oath about a sexual indiscretion. Oh, no American male has ever done that, Rory. No, never. That, that just doesn't happen. And he lost his law license for it. And that was all we got for four years, four years of relentless, uh, just, uh, just political theater. And then this is what the Democrats have gotten in return with Trump. That's why he's going to run away with the nomination. And I got to tell you, if he becomes president, that will be why. That will be why. And the Democrats deserve it because he shouldn't be facing all these trials. It's obscene. Any more than Bill Clinton should have been facing what he faced. And Hunter Biden should just be treated like any other guy who's got a rich daddy, who's getting business for having a rich, famous daddy. And that's a lot of people. And you know kids who the only reason they get a check is because somebody wants to get to know their daddy. doesn't mean their daddy did anything wrong. It just means the kid's a schmuck. And somebody wanted to pay a schmuck. And that's, if that's what Hunter Biden's guilty of, um, not paying taxes and, you know, colluding with foreign governments um, and maybe incorrectly lobbying and not registering as a foreign uh, agent. Well, then he should be treated like any other American who didn't register as a foreign agent. And generally, none of those guys go to jail unless it's political theater. I just I don't like the unequal treatment of people because of their politics or because of their status. Rich people should be the treated, treated the same as poor people. And Republicans should be treated the same as Democrats under the law. It's and black people and white people should be treated the same. And that's just such a fundamental American uh, precept to me. And I, I meet very few people now who will who were willing. And I don't I know almost none who defended. I was almost alone attacking Ken Starr as a Republican. All my friends told me I was a sellout and I was a liberal. I go, well, if you, if, if you want to accuse me of being guilty of a liberal because I hate special prosecutors, I can't think of anything more conservative because I don't trust government. And I want government to have a warrant with specificity. And I want to have a right to a lawyer. I think these are conservative things. They're not just liberal things. They're American things. So I, this has been my life's work is I, I'll happily not vote for a Republican if a Republican's not doing the right thing. Right. I'll happily. I voted for Bill Clinton twice, and I'd be happy to do it again. He was a good president. Yeah. Um, and he was effective. And, yeah. and he, he was better than, for my money than the Republican alternatives. And I'm yeah. a conservative. But at the time, given my two choices, I went, this guy's more conservative than the Republican. So I voted for Clinton. And look what he did. He balanced budgets. He and Newt Gingrich ran, I think, the best government, the best books we've ever had. It's the only time we balanced the budget in my lifetime. Um, and they did it twice. So, you know, good old days for me. And we were harassing the guy the whole time. From the time he got elected as Slick Willie. By the way, he got elected as Slick Willie. I mean, the whole electorate knew that he ran around on his wife. No one, no one thought anything. They voted for him anyway. What did we want to do? We wanted to prosecute. We wanted to show those this democracy that, you know, forget your votes. We're going to try and kick them out. We don't care about your vote. So I, I think there's just nothing more dangerous than these impeachments, these witch trials, these never-ending political trials. I just just vote him out of office. We have elections. It's it's marvelous how easy it is to get rid of a guy in America. Just vote him out. Right. And you bring up a point that I agree with. 
obviously I want everybody to get the same treatment. I don't want somebody to go to jail for something that millions of other people didn't and, you know, were allowed to, you know, just walk free. But when do we draw the line? When do we set the example? When do we finally start cracking down and making everybody equally, you know, pay a price? It's a great question. Here's what I would say to you as, as a person who has a lot of friends who are prosecutors. Be wary of, quote, setting an example with one person. You set the example by saying as a prosecutor, starting today, we are going to enforce this law for everybody. Because if you, if you create an example of somebody, you've got to be very careful, right? Because what if you're just targeting that person because you don't like them? Right. Um, so I, again, the application of the law to me, and I've known so many good prosecutors who've lived this themselves, and they've had to take heat for it. And I admire them the most. Look, I'm just, I'm just watching a film on the George Floyd trial. And uh, any trial where, where, where prosecutors and city councilmen and attorney generals are saying, I demand a murder conviction, right? Mm -hmm. There's something wrong, right? That no matter who you are, you have to say presumption of innocence, period. And so, again, I don't want to set a, an example of somebody. I want to make sure that we're applying the law equally. Now, if we're not enforcing, let's say, uh, the enforcement of property crime in cities right now, I wouldn't make an example of any single person. I would simply announce through the prosecutor's office from now on, if you rob a target and you steal a thousand dollars, you're doing a year minimum. And this applies to everybody going forward. Right. But I don't want to make an example of one person because well, what about the person before? Right. So what I want to do is be consistent. I want to apply the law equally. And I think this is the highest command for prosecutors um, and the highest command for our judicial system is to not make an example of one person, but set the example as a prosecutor by enforcing the law consistently and applying it consistently to all people. And George Floyd, uh, that whole thing was just crazy what it did to the country. I mean, divided us like no other, you know, um, but and Derek Chauvin, you know, is rotting in jail for something he didn't do. I mean, Derek, George Floyd died of a drug overdose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're seeing Chauvin. He didn't get the he got denied an appeal. If I if I'm not mistaken, um, I know they're going to keep trying, obviously. But wow. I mean, you talk about. You know, just uh, a scary scenario that could happen to any anybody. I mean, anybody could be facing this sort of framing situation. I mean, this this is so ugly, so dirty, so corrupt. Yeah. And, and it's all for political reasons. It was all, you know, to start a narrative, to start a trend, you know, to. Yeah. I mean, the, the fix was in. I mean, they had this planned out and I don't doubt that at all. Well, you know, I, there's a there's a, a movie out, a doc called The Fall of Minneapolis, and I heard about that. It's 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 really stunning and it's startling. And of course, it's it's written from the cops' point of view. It doesn't mean it's absolute truth. But there are things that that happen in that trial, including not sequestering the jury, including right. not bringing it to another location. I mean, exactly. every day the jury walked in there. It was surrounded by barbed wire. There were national guard everywhere. Meanwhile, there were protesters sitting in front of houses of anybody who took an over their side. So if you're a juror, 
there is pretty much zero chance you're going to be the person whose vote sets not only Minneapolis on fire, but your own home. So the fact that they didn't sequester this jury and get it and a jury outside of Minneapolis, that they allowed to the, the, the place to be surrounded by barbed wire and National Guard, intimating that this was a tinderbox, allowing the city to just go, allowing the precinct to go. Um, not most Americans not knowing the full story about what happened, how quickly the Minneapolis police called in for, for the ambulance. And that's why Chauvin had him down. He was waiting for the medics to come and waiting for an ambulance because George Floyd for eight minutes refused to get in the police vehicle. He refused. So they had to get a bigger vehicle. Plus, he was saying, I can't breathe after about three minutes. So the whole time while he was standing, while he was sitting, and he did have a problem with breathing because he also had serious cardiac issues. He had serious medical issues. And if you look carefully at some of the video, he had clearly swallowed whatever remaining fentanyl and drugs he had. Because there it is on his tongue, the dissolving drugs. By the way, he had done that one year earlier, the precise thing. Uh, and that was all captured on video, video cam. Some of the stuff that was excluded in that trial should have never been excluded. Material evidence. So I, I, I just distrust political trials where there's a lot of political theater. And ever since I saw the Killing Mockingbird, right? The whole, that, you know, all those people wanted that black kid to go away. They demanded it. And there are very few Gregory Peck prosecutors in this country who are willing to stare down their own mob and say, no mob justice here. No mob justice. And you would think more people would want to be like Gregory Peck and stand against their own and defend the outsider. Because that's what, that's really what To Kill a Mockingbird is about, right? This guy defends the black guy. Even though all the white people in that little town were sure that black guy did it. And they just wanted him hung. Well, because he's black. Guilty of being black. Well, I believe Derek Chauvin was guilty of being white. And, 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 and once that atmosphere occurs, you've got to protect Derek Chauvin. You've got to use all of your state power to protect him. Because that's the state's obligation, is to protect him. To make sure all the exculpatory evidence is released. Not to hide the exculpatory evidence, which happened in the Duke rape case. The prosecutors hid DNA evidence. They actually lied about the DNA. They didn't just hide it. They created another report and lied about it. And you watch the ESPN piece on the Duke rape case. It's so much worse than you could have known. Watch it, and you'll start to think about anybody you know on trial and wondering, is the prosecutor being fair? Is this guy getting a fair shake? And what if that were my sister or brother? And having spent three years in law school working in a defender's office and a prosecutor's office, it, it, it cuts to the core. I watch young black men go to jail for the simple crime of being near a crime. That's it. Nothing else. And nobody there to defend them. Nobody. The prosecutors didn't care. The, the, the defenders didn't care. They just processed these kids. And, and I saw it happen with poor white kids, too. I just happened to work in a Hackensack in Newark, New Jersey office where most of the most of the kids were black who were getting prosecuted. It wasn't racism. These were black cities, poor white cities. You'd see the same thing. Poor people don't get much representation. They just they basically just, you know, they have a choice. You're, you know, you go to jail for 20 years or sign this thing right here and you go to jail for two. And so they sign the thing for two. Plus, they can't rat out anybody because then they're in trouble. And there's usually gangs involved. So they just stay quiet. And I can't tell you how much I saw that. So I don't think the criminal justice system is corrupt. I just think it's complicated. And that's why the presumption of innocence is so, 
I, I so surreally important to me and should be to everybody because you just have to always say whether it's Donald Trump or it's George Floyd who deserved you know, look he he didn't deserve to die the question is how he died but the guy who deserved his rights to be defended was Derek Chauvin like him or not cop or not he had every right to a free and fair trial I don't think he got it I don't think it was even close no I agree I agree um Derek Chauvin needs to be uh, set free. He needs to be released. Yeah. And then the other cops. I mean, a couple of those guys were only out for like a couple of days. There is one black cop in that documentary who's practically weeping because the kid did nothing. He just watched and he watched a maneuver that was absolutely the way the cops were trained for that specific instance. And the picture in the manual of what Chauvin was doing to George Floyd is precisely what the man, the, the training said. Knee on the shoulder towards the neck here did not asphyxiate him. It looked like it asphyxiated him, but it did not. And it was the prop. Look, you may not like it, and yeah. people may criticize it after the fact. Right. But the chief of police got on the stand and lied about that manual. And yeah. then the pictures from the manual were not permitted in the court. I, right. I don't even I don't even understand how that could happen. Lee, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back. I, I definitely got more to talk to you about. Stay with us. Great. back um so lee let me ask you this justice system you you don't think it's corrupt even though there's all these innocent people that are in jail framed for crimes no i i think it's hard right and and it's difficult and i think you don't it's, think it's ever done on purpose just because people need to close, an, inve close an investigation and stuff like that i know it's done on purpose sometimes the question is compared you know where you always have to say compared to what go to any other place in the world and 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 there aren't even jury trials in other places it's just a judge go to half the world and you're just arrested for no reason there's no due process let me tell you it's hard I didn't do that for two long summers so that I could be a critic of our whole system. I did it because the system is vastly improved since I went to law school. But there's just, it's too hard. It's hard. It's complicated. And it's filled with human beings, with ambitions, often political ambitions. The prosecutor, he wants to run for governor. The, the defender, he wants to run for governor. So sometimes- How many percent of them would you say? All of them? 90, 90%? Say, I'd say enough of them. And if it's 10%, that's too many. Look, most of the people in jail in my life 
were there for a reason. And I'm talking 95% of it. And many of them who were in jail had committed some other crime and they, or they were in a gang. And sooner or later, they were going to commit another crime. And I really started to get involved in the other side of criminal justice reform, which is how do we keep the kids from going to prison? More importantly, when they get out, how do we have them not return? Right. And when they gave up the gang lifestyle, this is the best way to not get involved in the system. As, as Denzel Washington said, a friend of mine interviewed him about this and he goes, look, is the system bad? Yeah. But if you don't find yourself getting into the system because you had a father, and Denzel Washington always says this, if you have a father, odds are you ain't going to end up in the system. By the way, 92% of people in the system don't have fathers. And by the way, when a lot of kids grow up without fathers, the gangs replace the fathers. And once you're in a gang, you may have been tripped up and been in prison for one thing you didn't do, but you did nine other things. And though that's what I also uh, experienced. Yeah, the kid didn't do it this time, and he just happened to be there, but he's in a gang. You know, when the Italian mob got prosecuted, how they did that was under a thing called the RICO statute. How the RICO statute worked is John Gotti didn't have to kill the guy, because if some underling killed the guy, then Gotti killed the guy. These gangs can get prosecuted under RICO for good reason, right? Because they, they work together in the same way that felony murder. Look, you can have a gun, and you, you can drive only drive the car in a bank robbery. Your buddy goes in and shoots somebody and kills him. You never shot anybody. You didn't plan to shoot anybody, but you're going away from murder because we believe in this country that a rule called the felony murder rule means don't get in a car with a guy with a gun going in to rob a bank, right? Bad idea. You're not innocent. So there's not nearly as much, quote, innocence now in the system thanks to DNA, thanks to great uh, special defenders like Innocence Project, but much more important than that, uh, is that most of the people in the criminal justice system are good. Just like most teachers want to do good, most priests are not pedophiles, most radio hosts are not criminals, uh, most pastors are not, you know, you know, sleeping around with everybody, but right. the few are the few get exploded into the many. Not every cop is a sadist, right? But a couple of bad sadistic cops can really give a bad impression in a community. Um, and, and then the media, of course, loves to blow up any bad guy in any profession. Not everybody's Bernie Madoff. I've had a great stockbroker in my life who saved me from myself and many bad trades. And there are a hundred of those guys for every four or five who are criminals because that's life. Everybody's got someone in their family, probably, or extended family who's like, oh, my goodness. He's just never been right. He's just always made bad or duplicitous or even evil choices. And he's had to suffer the consequences. So on, on, in general, our criminal justice system is better than most. And it's really hard to get it right. Being a prosecutor is hard. And being a defender is hard. Thank goodness we have a trial by peers. Thank goodness juries decide this thing. Because um, imagine the opposite. Imagine if, like in Germany, it's just a judge. What if the judge doesn't like you? It's over. Um, and you don't have the rights. You don't have the free speech rights in England that you have here or Canada that you have in here. So I'm grateful for all these rights and freedom is hard and the justice system's got its problems, but compared to other justice systems, oh my goodness, half the world, there's no, you have no human rights in China. India's barely got their act together. The Middle East, forget it. Uh, Africa, they're, 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 good luck being charged with a crime. Look at crime, it's a Haiti. Um, criminal enterprises run the country. So I always, and I, that's why I love, I have best friends who are immigrants from Uganda and Haiti. And they always keep me honest, right? And they always just say, America's bad. They go, are you kidding me? 
He goes, live in Uganda for a minute. Come back here. You'll know what we got here in this great country. We've been talking about law. I want to ask you, what kind of law did you specialize in when you, because I know you're doing a lot, you're doing show stuff right now, or are you still doing law as well? You know, it's interesting. When I was with Laura in law school, I never planned to sit for the bar. What I wanted to do was learn about the intersection of the law yeah. and government, um, because we're a government of laws. And this makes us very unusual. Um, and you can't charge a person for a crime that you made law after the crime. This is incredibly unusual. Okay, I don't like this behavior. Well, is there a law against it? Then I can do it. And you're going to have to get the people of the state to agree to make that illegal or I can continue to do it. This is a miracle, right? Ex post facto. So I actually went to a great law school, UVA, because UVA is a place where you're also studying the Constitution. You're studying separation of powers, which is truly amazing, right? This idea of federalism. And all of it's to disperse power. It's to take away too much power from any one pocket. We've got six years in the Senate, two years in the House. That's excellent. Then we got four years for the president, so two, four, and six. And then you got this Supreme Court sitting over there at the side who can take it on over and they're completely independent and they've got the job for life. And then you've got all these states which have most of the power. Most of the power is given to the states. And even inside states, then you have counties, municipalities, cities. And all of this, this fighting over power makes America the greatest country in the world because if too much power gets in any one place, it's over. It's over. And so that's what I went to law school to study history. UVA has... You know, it had you know three of the first four presidents. It had the the founders. You couldn't imagine America without Jefferson and 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 Washington and, and James Madison. And I was in a law school where I was an hour drive from less than an hour drive from all three of the residences. And not enough of us study that, right? And then none of us are appreciative of this miracle in which we live. It's miraculous. And I would urge you, Rory, if you ever get a chance. Take your show and do an induction ceremony. My grandfather made me go to induction ceremonies every July 4th. He said, son, I still cry when I see the flag. And I hope you cry when you see the flag. And you can be a critic of this government, but you better understand how special this is because the inheritance you have here that people died for is easy to squander. It's easy to squander. So go see those Iraqis and go see those Somalis and those Indians and those Vietnamese swear their oath to allegiance to the American flag. It's an absolutely beautiful thing, Rory. It'll, it'll make you cry. It'll make you love your country, hearing these people talk about why they left their countries. And having lived here seven or eight years, the opportunities this country provides for every race, ethnicity. I'm Lebanese and Sicilian. I, 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 I faced a couple of little slight insults, but this country gave my family everything, everything, every opportunity to mess up our lives, or make our lives good. And uh, that I can't say that for many countries. And that's why people are crossing the border right now from everywhere. Um, right. I don't like illegal immigration, but boy, is it a symbol of something, right? And it certainly isn't that we're a white supremacist nation. Because if we were, why would Lebanese, Sicilians, Mexicans, and dark-skinned people from around the world come here if it's such a racist, awful country? It's just stupid, that narrative. And it's a beautiful, good country. That, that's, again, why I did Our American Stories, because we got to remember who we are and where we came from, uh, if we're to be able to pass that along to our kids and our grandkids. Too important to squander that kind of inheritance. And how often are you doing these episodes? We're on every night, two hours a night. I've got a staff of 20. Um, we're a nonprofit. We were very well funded. There were people in the center left, center right, center that like threw money at us to say, please, no politics. 
please, no opinion. We have enough opinions. Can we, does anyone know that John Adams defended the British? Where is that spirit in America? Me going down to the free Palestine kids and going to Harvard, and if Harvard tried to inhibit the speech of some kids saying from the river to the sea, as much as I hate that logo, right. and I hate it, I fight for the right for that kid to say it. Right, and that's the problem with Republicans right now. And, I I, and, I, and I'm calling this out because they say they're the champions for free speech, but then they want to ban anybody who's pro-Palestine on these campuses from you know speaking their voice. It's absurd. Nonsense. That's such nonsense. They can't have it both ways. Well, we're also doing that. We're banning the teaching of CRT. And I'm going, don't ban it. Just balance it. If you're going to teach CRT, you better teach the criticism of CRT and balance it out. But you can't ban the teaching of anything because that's not only not conservative, it's anti-free speech and it's un-American. And I don't look, I'll never forget when we canceled the Dixie Chicks, right? The conservatives canceled the Dixie Chicks about their objection to the Iraq war, which it turns out they were completely right. That was conservatives who burned Dixie Chicks records. And it was conservatives who canceled Bill Maher. We canceled Bill Maher, right? We did. I remember when it happened because Laura Ingram was a fan of Bill Maher. We defended Bill Maher because he had been misrepresented. He wasn't, the, I don't know if you remember what he got banned for, but Dinesh D'Souza was on the show, a friend of ours. And all he said was, was that give it to the Muslims. They're willing to die for their cause. So all he said, and all Bill Maher said is, yeah, that's true. We Americans are just launching grenades over there. The Muslims are willing to die for their cause. For saying that, conservatives banned him. They blocked him. The advertising poll that ABC got rid of politically incorrect because that was the show on ABC that was a hit show. It was conservatives who banned him. So both sides are capable of McCarthyism. But what the left's done on campuses is exclude us for so long that merely having an objective opinion or a differing opinion is cause for you leaving the campus. And that's what we should be fighting for. Balance and equality inside the campus so that there are as many conservatives, as many Christians being hired as atheists, as many conservatives being hired as liberals or progressives. That's all we want. That's all we should want is balance in the faculty. No, absolutely. 100% agree. Um, how old were you when you got into broadcasting and how did you? I, you know, Laura Ingram and I had uh, known each other in law school and yeah. uh, she liked media. I liked media. We started an underground student newspaper at UVA because critical race theory was starting right there. And yeah. we challenged it. We challenged yeah. the orthodoxy. She practiced law for a little while. I goofed around and then she got a show on MSNBC called Watch It. And I was her executive producer. But I knew that wasn't going to end well, that they didn't want us there. They didn't like us there. But we met Don Imus there and he was doing his radio broadcast for MSNBC. And we went, wow, this thing, radio is amazing. It was social media before there was social media. You had huge fans. They talked back to you. You could actually talk back to them. There was instant messaging. It was called the phone call. And that phone call, if you did it right, represented a whole bunch of other listeners. And we, we one day we just said, you know, we got to do this. And in the year 2000, we actually bought time in, uh, in Washington, D.C. at a WJFK, and we did a weekend show. And then we got a call one night from Norm Pattis, the chairman of Westwood One. He was listening to the show, liked it, was laughing, thought it was interesting and funny, and we were conservatives, but we would criticize Republicans. We would criticize Democrats, sort of like what I'm doing here, much more philosophical and principle-based 
not this is my team that's your team i hate you because you're wearing blue or i'm wearing red or your name's Vinny and my name's joe and i hate every Vinny i've ever met I, i'm just not into that it's stupid and it's boring it's boring what's exciting is the debate the discussion and also weird agreements where you get we had christopher hitchens on every monday and though we didn't see eye to eye with many things with christopher we would try and find things that we could have great discussions about and our best hour of radio ever was the beatles versus bob dylan and we went into it and we we argued about who was more important who influenced music more we took callers we took music historians it was an amazing hour and it had nothing to do with politics but yet it did because the beatles were a very different band and a very different influence on music than Bob Dylan was. And Dylan was a very different character. You know, he had a Christian period, right? He did that folky stuff and he hated it. He abandoned it in no time. He didn't want to be like a, a, a hippie folky marching with a Marxist banner. So Dylan was such a more fascinating figure as we had the debate than the Beatles were. Though the Beatles may have had more musical influence, Bob Dylan may have had more writing influence. And that was a real, so having those kind of discussions and learning from each other and then having a political debate is a far different thing than only having a political debate and then leaving and then going on to the next guest. And that's what made Laura and I's show so revolutionary. Half of the time, 50% of the time, we had to talk about cultural things. And that's where we would find the arguments or the agreements were fascinating. Henry Kissinger would phone in and do our sports because he was a baseball fan. And so Henry Kissinger would do the scores. And we go, Henry, back to you. What happened with the scores? We feed him the scores and he go, Yankees three, Boston Red Sox two. I'm happy about that one. And little did you know that Henry Kissinger, a guy who survived World War II, uh, brokered you know, peace deals in Vietnam War, very controversial figure to some, a hero to others, loved baseball. And so we just gave him that space to do a baseball broadcast. No controversy, no nothing. And that was the fun of doing that show for three hours a day for seven years. Um, and then when she went to Fox and television, I, television had no interest to me. And being on Fox every day and having to hammer Democrats just had no interest to me. I, 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 I find that Democrats have some good ideas sometimes, less now than ever before. But Republicans often have some terrible ideas. And now, as, as often as before. And I, I, I will vote against my party any day and for my principles any day in a heartbeat yeah no i hear you um before you go and i could talk to you all day i love having you on i got to get you back soon Happy to. uh talk about your day-to-day -day operations at salem man i mean that's a big position you have that's it's big time well you know it, you know i i wish i could say it is but you know i leave i leave the teams alone you know, one of the things I learned, you know, I went to well, before I went to law school, I, li I lived in L.A. for a year. My sister had just been signed to Atlantic Records. I had a lot of friends who were artists. I went to acting school and a lot of friends who were successful in the arts. And I just I wanted to understand the nature of that business and the nature of storytelling and the nature of all those things. And what I learned from the, the most talented people, particularly David Geffen, who had this little record company. But a tremendous success. And I don't know if you know anything about David Geffen, but watch the documentary on this guy. I mean, he formed two labels, both of whom were sold for over a billion dollars. And he had very few employees and he empowered his A&R guys to go out and sign great artists. And he wouldn't sign many. And then pretty soon artists were like, hey, these guys don't want to change me. They want me to let me make the records I want to. 
And ultimately, he had all kinds of success in the 70s with the Eagles, with Jackson Brown. Then he forms a label in the late 80s and the 90s, and it's Guns N' Roses, and it's Nirvana, and it's the Counting Crows. And they only they have a very small office. So what Salem's always had an eye for is talent. And so to, to have Eric Metaxas, to have Bill Bennett, to have Dennis Prager, right? That's the, that's the hard part. Once you get the talent, if you can keep the talent, make them happy, get them well-paid, monetize the talent, um, your job's easy. Get the production units, get the teams in place, let them do their thing, and let's make sure that we monetize them so they get paid well, so they don't leave us. So luckily, I got to watch David Geffen and his management team love the talent, pay them well, take care of them, recruit great talent, because that's half of your ratings problem. You know, if you don't have a great radio host, you don't have a a great a great show you've done something really interesting today rory and you've done what our great hosts do you actually let the guests speak yeah. most don't do it they're, they're so insecure that the people who are marginal talents that they feel the need to like fill in the sentences of the guest so it, it, what you've done today is what our the best hosts i've ever worked with do they let the guests speak and then if you want to go on a rip or a monologue you go on it but the worst host in an interview that I'll do, we'll, we'll talk 70% of the time. And I, I feel like going, well, why, why did you invite me here? And do I have to agree with you? Because I'm never going to agree with any host all the time that I ever come on with. Because first of all, why would I do that? I don't even agree with my wife in a two-hour conversation every time. I don't agree with myself after a two-hour conversation, generally. I'll find something where I'll go, did I really say that? Do I really believe what I just said? If I just sort of say it, I better read more about that, right? So that's what makes life interesting is people hearing something they didn't hear before, people hearing an actual point of view without being interrupted all the time. And that's really was the genesis of our American stories. You don't even hear me in the show. I introduce the subject and then you we produce out the interviewer. The interviewer is not there. Whoever the producer was who interviewed it, they disappear. And then we put music underneath it. We turn it into a three-act play. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it feels like it feels actually like a, a, a documentary without the pictures. And that's what we decided finally stylistically by 2008. That became our protocol. And at all, oh, the ratings just shot up. I mean, in some stations in the country, we're getting like 12 shares and 15 shares. It's crazy. Um, and I think people have had enough of that opinion. I think they want to hear interesting things. And not just everything related to the news. I mean, the idea that you heard about, you know, John, you know, John Adams. You know, when John Adams did that, by the way, Rory, imagine this. He's not rich. He's a founder who's not rich. He, he, he grew up moderate to moderately poor. So he comes to Boston to be an attorney. It's not exactly a good career move to defend the Redcoats. But this is the kind of honor this guy had, right? This is the kind of integrity this guy had. And by the way, when push came to shove, who did everyone trust because of that? They trusted John Adams because of his courage. When you read about George Washington and you find out he surrenders his commission after winning a war, this hadn't been done since Cincinnati. When people won wars as general, they became the rulers. What did George Washington do? Having left Mount Vernon for seven years, seven years, not gone home, one of the richest men in the country through marriage, one of the most beautiful homes in the country. He goes home once in seven years, seven years away from home. And then when he wins the war, he resigns his commission and goes back home. 
crazy. So you can maybe not like Washington because he owns slaves, but everybody owns slaves in those years. But what you've got to know about George Washington is that he surrendered his commission and that he's the indispensable American. No George Washington, no America. And there are almost no historians who think that except this new modern breed who wants people to hate George Washington because they want people to hate their country. So we can get more people to fall in love with George Washington. It's going to be really hard for them to hate their country. And that's why they've gotten rid of American education. They've gotten rid of history, which my dad was a history teacher. Heck, his idea of a summer trip, my dad, was, hey, we're going to go to Gettysburg and we sit visit the battlefield. Then we're going to go all the way down to uh, the, the final staging ground and the city that really ended the war, the battle that really ended the war, which is Vicksburg. That was a road trip of my dad. And it was fascinating to learn about my country by touring the country. And once you present history right, it's not boring. It's those guys were walking around like we're walking around today. George Washington didn't know he was going to beat the British. In fact, his entry on the day he looked into the Boston, New York Harbor and saw an armada of British ships coming, his entry that day in his journal, according to David McCullough, who wrote 1776, the biography of a year, Washington wrote, few men know the predicament we're in, right? And, and few do. And that we were able to basically not only divorce a king, nobody had ever divorced a king before, but attempt to self-govern after winning a war against the mightiest army in the history of the world. Maybe the Roman army was more powerful, but the British army was close and the British Navy was even more powerful. And what did we do? We fought them. And enough Americans decided to fight and, and stem off that, that battle to win our independence. And no country had ever decided or tried to do what we did and we're still doing it. And we're still working off the same constitution since 1787. This is a miracle. And so if people would study that, and then here's the inheritance kids, and there are two kinds of kids, and you know this, Roy, I'll leave you with this maybe. Look, I've known two kinds of rich kids. The rich kids whose families don't make the kids work, and the rich families who do. And while they're making the kids work, they're teaching about the inheritance of the family, and they're not giving it to them all at once, because the kids will piss it away, right? And just as with those kind of inheritances, the inheritance that this country hands off to the next generation. Well, that next generation is only as good as the adults who handed it off to them. And I don't want to blame my educators for this. Sit your kids down at the dinner table or sit your neighbor's kids down at the dinner table and open up a book and read to them about George Washington. And they are going to be mesmerized because it's not political what George Washington did, only to the extent that he created the first free people. And regrettably, blacks and women weren't a part of that. But they soon would be. And not fast enough, but compared to everywhere else and in, in, in the chain of human history, faster than anywhere before. In fact, the abolition of slavery really starts to happen around the time of the Declaration of Independence. It had never even been considered before the abolition of slavery. It was not only abnormal, it wasn't only unusual, it didn't exist. England did it, Belgium did it, and then America did it. The last nations to free slaves were Iran, Nigeria, it was the Middle Eastern nations up until the 1940s and African nations still today, you see kids being sold in open market if you go. It's still alive. This, in fact, there's never been more slavery than today, human trafficking. A lot of what's going across the border is human trafficking. So this idea that somehow white people had created slavery 
when the Ottomans had done it, the Middle Easterners traded so many more black people than the Americas did. Africans traded with themselves. The Indians enslaved other Indian tribes after war. Slavery was ugly, but it was normal. What was abnormal is what we do here in America. Completely abnormal for a Greek, an Italian, a Chinaman, a Jew, an Italian, a Christian, a Catholic, and an atheist to live in a community and not shoot one another. And that happens every day in this country. Go to any shopping mall, go to any football stadium, you'll see 80 or 100,000 people gathered together who should hate each other, and they don't. It's a miracle what happens here every day. We focus on the, the 500 kids with the from the river to the sea banner, but not the 80,000 who aren't carrying that banner, right? And I'm promising you, at the big state universities in this country and all the community college, very few kids are carrying from the river to the sea banners. They're the minority. Very few priests are abusing kids. They're trying to work on the soul of their flock called Catholics. And there are a lot of them, and they're beautiful. And they're a beautiful atheist. My father's one. And we get along. It's amazing how we get along. The, the, the progressives are trying to get us to hate each other. Black right. versus white, gay versus straight. Good luck. Good luck with that. We love each other. Better than almost any, any civilization as different and divergent as we are has ever been in human history. My daughter is part Arabic, she's part Lebanese, part Italian, she's part German. On my wife's side, she's part Viking, she's part American Indian, and she's part Irish. So my kid has six different ethnicities bleeding through her. For her to choose anyone is idiotic, as she right. will always tell anybody she meets, I'm an American, damn it, and I'm proud of it. And Amen. if you don't like it, go F yourself. Amen, no, I love that. No, I love that, I love that. Uh, Lee, let's get you back here soon. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. You bet. It's OurAmericanStories.com, Rory. It's OurAmericanStories.com or wherever you get your podcast. I, you know, Apple, just put in Our American Stories. And we've got almost 800 hours of storytelling uh, sitting there waiting for you. And everything from the history of sports to the history of business to the history of products, military history, every kind of history, every, every silo. We've got it. And from the best historians, political writers, sports writers in the business. Perfect, man. Perfect. Well, I'll talk to you soon, man. Keep up the great work. And uh, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for, uh, Rory, superb. You know, as you know, I work with a lot of hosts. Superb hosting. You, you, you laid back, asked some provocative questions, and let the guests talk. You get an A-plus from the VP of Salem uh, on interviewing skills, because that's the best skill in the world It's to listen. It's a crazy I one. I really appreciate the kind words, my friend. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Have a great weekend. Have a great new year. God bless you, man. And uh, cheers, man. Rory, how do you get your dog to stay still over there? But before he was so still, he wasn't barking. He wasn't. That, that's a gift. I, I know, right? I, I don't know. I guess, I guess I just have the magic touch. I don't know. I don't know what it's, it is. You got to teach me one day. <laughs> I will, man. We'll talk. We'll definitely right, talk. Uh, God Good. bless, though. Happy New Year. You bet. Same here. Uh, stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back.
And we are back, Rory Sauter and the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. It is a beautiful Friday afternoon. I do want to introduce my next guest. We have Danny Katz with us, her first time on. It is great to have you here, your first time. Uh, give us a little bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun stuff. I know you've had quite the life. Oh my God, there's so many things. Hi, Rory, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, wow. I don't know where to start. I mean, my whole life, I wanted to be a journalist. I got a master's degree in journalism. Um, and then I realized that that whole realm was fake and co-opted and truth wasn't really allowed there. Um, so I pivoted and I'm a quantum languaging consultant. I teach people how language functions as reality creation technology and how to use language to transform themselves and the world. It's like a tiny taste of what I do, but I feel like it's a good starting off point. I, lo I love it. And going back to what you said about realizing how the journalism world is just fake and phony and you're not really allowed to say what you want to say, it's, it's controlled. It's super controlled. So I learned that um, one of my first jobs out of grad school was producing the news at Pasica KPFK yeah. and our um so this was like during 9-11 and um our news director was fired like out of the blue and this new guy came in and I pitched him a 60 second good news story once a week and he said you're fired you clearly don't know what we're trying to do here and I was like oh um, I made it work for a while writing for the LA Weekly where I wrote for about 10 years, but when it came to anything political there, they just had blinders on, like they weren't willing to do the research to educate themselves, which I found really disturbing. Um, and then I started getting canceled around like 2011, 2012, that's when um all of a sudden we we were there was a lot of language policing we weren't allowed to be critical of various movements um i wrote an article for reality sandwich about gender reassignment surgery um and back then i was looking at it through the lens of the 53rd gene key the gene keys being a spiritual transmission that i'm pretty into mm -hmm. and they were taking on um claire graves work in terms of life evolves to transcend and include every level that came before so is cutting off our junk transcending and including no it's pretty violent so how about we just like expand our definitions of gender instead of marginalizing a small group of people and inviting them to like jump on the western medical titty and you know mangle themselves and all of those things and then i was like um there was this huge like kind of twitter campaign to cancel me and i was you know called all the names and then reality sandwich didn't want to deal with me anymore and then in 2020 i helped write um pandemic 2 indoctrination and that was like the nail in the coffin of my journalism career it was like okay <laughs> you're never allowed in this industry again now talk about pandemic 2 what did that entail that entailed a lot of like very fast paced, balls to the wall, deep, deep, deep investigative journalism, which is my favorite. So it was really fun project. Um, my first task was to put together our, our whole Bill Gates dossier. Um, and I 
I mean, it was really fun to do that kind of like deep research. Mickey was really, really a stickler for having multiple backups for every fact. Like I've never been more fact checked mm -hmm. than I was on that documentary. And then when I finished writing that, um, I cried for two days straight. <laughs> oh, wow. I was like, wow, we're really screwed here. <laughs> and how long did that take you? How long was that process doing all the research, doing new all the due diligence, I imagine it took a while, right? No, well, we didn't have a lot of time, oh. um, maybe like a month. Okay. Yeah, but it, but it was, it was like I was 24 seven, it didn't matter if it was like- oh, You didn't sleep, morning. you were constantly awake doing research. Like it, like it seems like you're so dedicated and motivated and so passionate that when something like this comes up, you can't take your mind off of it, right? <laughs> No, definitely not because it's like your like, soul. It's like your soul focus. So yeah. focused. I mean, because I knew about you know Project for a New American Century, the globalist agenda back in two thousand one. So my whole career had been focused on staving off mm -hmm. what we're living through now. In twenty twenty, I still thought we had a chance. I have this kind of like delusional idealism that's like we can do it. This doesn't have to happen. Right. Um, so I was willing to put everything into that film. I really thought we were going to stop it. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> Do you think there's going to be another scamdemic scenario? Um, I've been talking about for a long time, you know, with Bill Gates and all this stuff. You know, you had over 70% that complied the first time around with lockdowns and everything and the vaccines. So why wouldn't the government try it again, you know? Well, one thing that I'm aware of as the like being someone who's been in the deep truth community for such a long time is mm -hmm. just because they have plans doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. So I'm always reticent to offer my own like confidence in their plans. Mm -hmm. um, people, so many people have woken up. Mm -hmm. um, and continue to wake up. I do think they're going to throw every noodle at the wall. Um, and I don't want to cast my vote for their shenanigans by articulating them, right? Um, I'm sure they're gonna try a lot of things and I just continue to do my best to encourage humans to connect with their own sovereign agency and learn the very simple word, no. <laughs> and then right. all this can be done. Right, and, and I wanna go back to what you said. You've been working in news outlets and, and with organizations and in media it's us it sounds like since 9-11 um so back then and now explain like the shift the difference with reporting with how things are run operations stuff like that okay well i, I haven't been in a newsroom for quite a while because i was yeah you know booted as a a wild card i think <laughs> back then we were still under the illusion that journalism and by the way i feel like it's important in today's day and age for people to be more independent like with the whole journalism stuff because they're so controlled at these outlets they're limited to what they can say they can't even be a journalist you know what i mean of course no i yeah. i think they're all dead and i'm right you know, um, it's weird for me coming from that world because I had so many friends and colleagues and I, it's just like, I don't understand where the integrity went and how they continue to go through the motions of calling themselves journalists. So right. I haven't been in a newsroom in a while, but we were pretending back then that 
that there was truth, that there was justice, that like we could have a positive impact. But now I think it's just a million percent controlled. And I don't think people are allowed in the door who are free thinkers. Like what I've noticed is that the people who are at the front of the room leading all of the conversations, even in the quote unquote health freedom movement, yeah. are the people with limited intelligence who can be controlled and big egos who love being puffed up and don't question why they're put at the front of the room. So I think those of us who go scorched earth, who are like, there's no limit to how much truth I'm going to speak and discern for myself. We're not even allowed in those rooms anymore. Um, whereas before I think they used to like, um, like they would, I was always the weird conspiracy theorist at LA Weekly, but I was still allowed to play. Now I'm not even allowed to play. Wow. Interesting stuff. And with all the madness going on in the world, with all the craziness, with all the bad stuff, I can't think of anything good. What is like your obsession as of lately with what you've been directing your focus towards and studying? Because I know you probably look at everything. I look at everything. So my focus has been like after they installed Biden into <laughs> the White House, yeah. I realized like, okay, we're not like humanity has chosen their enslavement timeline. So right. let's redirect. So my energy has gone into teaching teens about propaganda, mm. media literacy, how to safeguard their critical thinking to ensure mm. that it doesn't happen again on their watch. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I just came came out with a new book of betterarchy, which is about evolving our culture out of hierarchy together into what I'm calling betterarchy. So I, I'm run by a kind of insane amount of idealism and, mm -hmm. you know, this continued kind of like cheerleader enthusiasm for the fact that like we outnumber them, we are creative, free thinking, empowered beings, and we can flip this on a dime. So, um, my focus is empowering people with tools to do so. Right now, what we're dealing with is a war of words, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is all propaganda and mass mind control. We're not out in the streets with like tanks and bombs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just all these psyops coming through the media. So since they're using words as their primary weapon, we can use words as our primary tool to unify and create a different game. So that has been, you know, my primary obsession for the past few years. Yeah. And the whole propaganda scenario is a big problem. It is nonstop. There is so much fake shit out there. There is so much brainwashing. There's so much manipulation and a lot of people, sadly, are naive and gullible and they don't know what to really believe and they'll just go along with things, uh, you know, and that's terrifying. That's not okay. And when you, I think I mentioned a little bit ago, all these different outlets that people have were, you know, there's so much fake stuff, so much, so much that can fill their heads with the wrong kind of nonsense. Completely, which is why my focus has been on let's teach people how propaganda functions. Like I'm always going to root causes. Like how deep can we go to tackle the multiple issues that are emerging from mm -hmm. the root cause? So mm -hmm. what I've, you know, I witness this because I teach teenagers and teenagers are rebellious, right? So right. I'm, I'm yeah, because they're told what to do by their parents forever. And then finally they want to break free and spread their wings and... You know what I mean? Totally. So yeah. 
the the teens that I'm teaching are being homeschooled. So some of them are rebelling against their their you know more patriot free thinking parents by doubling down on like the trans thing or Black Lives Matter or whatever it is. And it was really interesting to observe that when I just because when I'm teaching my classes, my whole thing is like, I'm never going to tell you what to think. Like you are a free thinking, autonomous human. I'm just empowering you how to think and how to think for yourselves. So it was so gratifying to witness some of these teens who were doubling down on those ops. And once they clued into the propaganda techniques that had been working on them, they were like, oh, and like very effortlessly, just like, let it go. Um, so that helps me realize that like, once we learn the propaganda techniques, it's like, once you learn a magic trick, it doesn't work on you anymore. You, you are clued into the illusion. Same thing with propaganda, propaganda. Once we clue in to these ridiculous tools and techniques they're using, then it's very clear how controlled the media space is. So I'm hoping you know, that there's like a ripple effect and people, you know, of all allegiances and engineered sides will wake up to the fact that we're all being psyoped. And I think that's a big piece of it is, um, you know, I'll hear a lot of people in our conversation will speak to people like you need to wake up and you need to do this and you're being, you know, shammed. And it's like, no, we're all being scammed. We're, we all need to wake up. We're all under the same mind control indoctrination propaganda. So I think there's something to that inclusion of like, I'm not separate. I'm just as susceptible. Um, let's all wake up to this together and create something better together. Right. And I feel that the media, the education system, the curriculum in that area has always been very controlled, very, very indoctrinating. But I feel like it's to a whole new level of crazy at this point. Um, I feel like we've never seen it like this. I feel like they've taken it to a whole nother degree. Oh, a thousand percent. We can thank Obama for that because Obama was the one who put in common core curriculum, which was Bill Gates, right. brilliant. I hate humanity brainchild. And then it was Obama who um, rescinded the Smith Act with the Smith Modernization Act and made it legal for the American government to propagandize its own people. So why would they do that? Like, of course, it was, you know, the way they do it, it was in with like a hundred bajillion points that no one, none of our quote unquote elected leaders actually read. But at the same time, he's given a multi-million dollar production deal with Netflix. You have um, Susan Rice, um, who was in his cabinet, is promoted to the board on Netflix. So it seems very obvious to me what is going on and what the long game is. Um, right. So yeah, it's completely over the top. And I always wonder, like, you know, these actors who've been in the game for a long time and now they're they're going along with these propaganda pieces, like, how do they feel about that? Can they sleep at night? Do they have a gun to their head? These quote unquote journalists or editors in the newsroom, news directors, like, do they, are they being threatened? Are they being bought off? Like, I understand what the powers that were are doing to push through this gross agenda, but the minions who are allowing it to happen, like, why are they going along with it? That, that yeah. That's always odd to me. Right. And when you're 
getting your journalism degree, are the universities and the fake news media corresponding? Are, are they working together like where, you know, in, in a situation like CNN would give universities or, or, or whatever channel, you know, what they want taught, uh, if people are going to be coming out of school, getting ready for, for a job there, stuff like that. I mean, cause you said it's so fake. Um, I'm just wondering, does stuff like that happen? Is it? <clears throat> it didn't happen when I was in journalism school, but I was, so I went to USC, which mm -hmm. at the time was known as um, like the strongest program for like old school, ethical, traditional journalism, which is why I chose it, right? I was really right. into the ethics of journalism. Um, the year after I graduated is when it became the Annenberg School. So knowing what we know about the Annenberg family, it's certainly possible that a lot more nefarious forces came in through that. But when I was there, it was on the level. Um, the only thing that was weird about it, which I actually just talked to Charlie Robinson about, are you familiar with his macroaggressions podcast? It sounds, the name sounds familiar. I don't, I don't, I've never listened to it though. It's a great one. I recommend it. And, um, so we were both at USC at the same time and mm. we had the same experience where the, the one weird, weird thing there, which has nothing to do with media is that they give all the grants and scholarships to the richest students. Mm. Um, and the poorest students are really treated like second class citizens get last choice at the classes. Um, so that was the only thing I was aware of there was this kind of like two tier classes system. But, um, Again, like I said, Annenberg took over right after I left. So who knows what they did and what sort of like money and influence is flowing into J school now. And I hear you write a lot. Do you, how many books do you have? Quite a bit. I've written four books wow. for myself. I go I can't even write one. I'm still working on my first one. <laughs> the key is just do it every day. Right. And it is so painful. It's it all about getting in that focus mode, getting in that mindset. And once I'm there, I'm good. But it's all about getting there. You know what I mean? The key for me with all of my books has been right first thing in the morning before I check my email, before anything else right. can take my attention away, just get in my writing for my books and also avail myself to the fact that the book is going to suck. Mm -hmm. until it you know for at least a few drafts and i think that might be one of the hardest things it's like writing and it's like this isn't right this doesn't work here but just keep going keep going keep going right. um, it's definitely an exercise in insane stamina yeah oh oh absolutely yeah. uh so a as you were saying uh, you were going to talk about your books okay so my um i have a transformational coloring book called yes i am oh nice um, my first quantum languaging book is called Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change. I wrote an illustrated guide to propaganda in 2021. Oh, nice. And then the language of betterarchy, which just came out, was five years of like intense bleeding and, you know, a million dark nights to get that right. And I also ghost wrote a book called Spirit Hacking for a man who calls himself Shaman Durek. So that's it for the books. Thus and far. What's that last one about? Um, so he is a spirit shaman and it was about, um, I wrote it for Penguin. So the challenge was oh, to nice. take something so esoteric, mm -hmm. like African spirit shamanism, translate it for the mainstream. So fun project and also to write in someone else's voice. 
um it was super fun i'm, I'm proud of that one it's 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 a fun read. And the one you just put out that you've been working on for five years, isn't that the big one? The one that's really getting a lot of great feedback and you're doing a lot of interviews for it? Yeah, it's a big one. And, um, you know, the landscape had changed so drastically when I started writing it because I started writing it in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then the FOVID op happened and I was like, wait a minute, I don't know how this changes my book or not. Right. Um, and that book, it so it's a it's divided into three parts. The first part is dismantling the myth of patriarchy, mm -hmm. um, and this notion that patriarchy is to blame for everything terrible that's ever happened, and that the quote unquote solution is to put formerly marginalized groups on top. So part one of the book challenges that whole system. Like if we need there to be losers for there to be winners, if we need to treat men like dirt for women to take their place at the top, then the system is fundamentally broken and outdated and we really need to evolve the actual system. So it's also breaking down the lie that putting women in charge is some sort of solution. <laughs> You know, like you look at a Hillary or a Kamala and it's like, are they leading with capital F feminine principles? No, right. they're leading with the exact same masculine shadows that everyone's taking issue with. Right. You look at the fourth wave feminist movement, kill all men, smash the patriarchy. These are the most violent masculine shadows. And when I say masculine, I don't mean men. I'm talking about like the energetic polarities that define this reality construct, the hermetic principles, plug a, an, um, a plug into an electrical socket, the socket is feminine, the plug is masculine. So the first part is really helping people understand that um, putting women on top and kicking men to the curb is still a fundamentally imbalanced system that is elevating masculine ways and means of doing over capital F feminine ways of means of doing. So then I break down um, how the, tr the real issue is hierarchy and how hierarchy is sustained with language, right? It's not um, a 3D thing that we build with bricks and mortar. It's an abstraction. It's a concept. And all these abstractions and concepts that keep hierarchy alive um, are being empowered with our words. So I break down the 10 markers of hierarchical languaging so that we could start to clue in on where we are responsible for our world being the way it is, where we're speaking division, we're speaking violence, we're speaking limitation and scarcity and fear into our shared collective reality and how to upgrade our language so that we're speaking what I'm calling betterarchy. You know, Tesla and Einstein both said, if you want to understand this realm, you need to understand frequency. And the frequency that we put out into our world determines how this world um, coheres itself, right? How it organizes itself. So if I'm putting the frequencies of fear and division and conflict out into the world, then I need to take responsibility for the world shaping itself as it is. If I truly want to change this world, then it is on me to infuse the world with up-leveled frequencies of abundance, of unity, of empowerment of enough to go around of agency and so this is a handbook how to do it um and the aim is for it to really help us unify this division is so contrived it's so fake it's so flimsy it's so annoying um and this is a tool for us to evolve past it 
come together and vision up a better game that we can all live into. And how do you think we got to this place of the attacks on the patriarch, the attacks on men, you know, belittling them, tearing them down, you know, the idea of this whole girl boss scenario that it's cool for a woman to be alone, um, you know, totally taking out the marriage aspect uh, of things that they want to, they want to break that. Um, even kids, they don't want women to have kids. It seems like, I mean, they're, they're speaking out against that too. I mean, it goes on and on. They, this is all about being single and being miserable. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, this demoralization campaign has been going over a century, right? We can look back right. at Tavistock, you know, Tavistock was created to degrade women. You know, that was, right. that was part of its intention. I think we could definitely see like the whole LGBTQ, RST alphabet movement coming the out of Tavistock. Yeah. Right. All, all of the feminist movements. I mean, I think the first one probably had some real, um, like metal and, and integrity yeah. to it. But you look at second wave feminism and right. we know that Gloria Steinem was a CIA asset. Um, mm -hmm. Third wave ethical sluthood, you know, that whole like, let's be miserable and cut ourselves and have sex with random people. Right. Um, so this demoralization campaign has been going on for a really long time. They play a long game, you know, the, the powers that were. I think... Um, if again, going back to root causes, because we've all been indoctrinated in this system for generation generations, but I think the misunderstanding of authority, you know, and how that definition was changed. Because if we go to the etymology of authority, it comes from the Latin word octor, which means founder, builder, or one who causes to grow. So think how different that is than the idea of some external force that has authority to tell me what I can or cannot do. So over generations of indoctrination, I think people have dropped the ball on our own inner authority. And so many people walk around not understanding how much power and agency we all truly have. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's multifold. Every song, every you know, television show, every movie is pushing those same fairy tales down our throats. Um, we've all been indoctrinated, those of us who were educated in the West, like we all have that kind of nonsense in our minds. So it goes back for a really long time. I don't know if I could pick any one thing, but I think, you know, and also the Me Too movement, like that erupted this big revelation that there's a casting couch in Hollywood, which became front page news, that erupted because footage started to emerge showing shooters on the ground at the Vegas false flag. Right. So, and that's when they threw Harvey Weinstein under the bus. So I think we can thank Hollywood and all of its like celebrity shills for banging the Me Too drum and then the media for jumping on. I mean, my last mainstream assignment was for Los Angeles Magazine, and it was about the Me Too movement. They assigned it to me. I went through several drafts with an editor, and at the last minute, they said, we can't run this because it's critical of the Me Too movement. And I was like, why is that a problem? Like, when is, when, since when is that a barrier to offering a different perspective on an issue that seeks to destroy men and create more and more dissonance between us? 
Um, so it's all by design. It's all their divide and conquer so that we're not paying attention to the stuff that really matters. How many lives do you think were ruined during the Me Too movement with fake accusations and a lot of girls just jumping on this train just so they could be a part of the trend. They wanted to be a part of the movement. They wanted to feel special. You know, it's it's like that social justice warrior mentality. When they're a part of something, they feel better about themselves. It's a major insecurity flaw. Uh, it's pretty pathetic. It is. I think it's also combined with this outrage. Like from, I think people are so outraged by the state of the world. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, it's a culturally sanctioned place to direct it. Right. I it's, When you asked me the question, I got a chill. Like, I don't know an actual number, but I'm thinking of how many people I know personally right. whose reputations have been destroyed. And what annoys me most about the conversation is that there's no talk about star fucking. There's no talk about these women who had no problem selling themselves down right. the river to be near famous people. Like that gets no critical attention whatsoever. And you look at like all of the ruckus about the whole grab them by the pussy thing, which when you look at it in context right. is never what they made it, what they made it. You know, I was born and raised in LA. I know that culture very well. Yeah. And it's devastating to see women um, disrespecting themselves and not having their own backs to the extent that they do. And now we have culture um, ratifying that, validating that. It's totally fine to take a meeting in someone's hotel room at one in the morning, they're the bad guy 20 years later, when all of a sudden it's a trend for you to decide that it's rape or that you regret it. Like, it's just messy. I mean, we live in a realm of equal and opposite forces. So if the masculine is out of balance, then so too is the feminine. And the kindest, most compassionate thing we could do for one another is look at where we can each take responsibility and support one another compassionately instead of demonizing and throwing one another one another down the river. So I'm I mean my perspective on the whole me too thing lost me a lot of friends early on because I would see people in LA like walking around like they're dressed for the bedroom just to go to the farmers market and it's like look I'm right. all about freedom you have every right to do whatever you want to do but you're kidding yourself if you think that there aren't consequences. And it's not to say that it's okay for a man to lay hands, but if you're gonna rile up a tiger by waving raw meat in front of its face, and then after you do that enough times, you're gonna shame the tiger for being a tiger and not take any responsibility for your mockery of that tiger, there's, no, there's not a solution there. Like that's just creating more and more of a mess. Absolutely, very well said. and. We were, you were talking earlier about movements and how feminism at one point could have been something good. And I, I feel like you're right. I feel like a lot of these movements get hijacked. Like initially they start out for, you know, um, honest purposes. Not all of them. I would say a good, a lot, I would say there's a significant amount that start out for nefarious purposes and that's their whole intent uh, from the get-go. But there are quite a few that do start out with good intentions and then they get hijacked. Yeah, I'm not a fan of movements in general. Right. I think if you're going to create a movement, prepare for it to be co-opted or psyoped or something like 
you know, I was, I mean, the whole health freedom thing, you know, Mickey and I are, have very different perspectives on this. It's like, yeah. I'm not going to fight or create a movement out of something that should never be questioned in the first place. That's only fueling the idea that, you know, my right to, to, to breathe freely or my right to not be forced to inject myself is something that I need to fight for. Same with free speech. I'm never going to fight for free speech. I stand in my God-given right to say whatever I want. And if someone wants to question that, that's their problem. I'm not even going to entertain it with them. So I think movements themselves are fundamentally flawed. Like as a woman, I don't need a movement to know myself as equal and empowered. And at this point, what I see happening through those movements is, is very disturbing to me. I, I really don't want anything to do with them. No, I understand. No, they, they, they get out of control. I mean, Black Lives Matter, the feminists, the, it goes on and on. I mean, and I'm sure you get called names. I'm sure you get called, you know, different things for speaking out against this, right? I do. And at this point, probably lost friends over it. Oh my God. So Just many speaking, friends speaking the truth and speaking, you know, your mind and being brave enough to talk about, talk out against the problems. Yeah. I've lost. I mean, I think we all have, right. It's like a constant grieving, you know, that, right. that I've lost so many people and so many colleagues. And, you know, I live in a very small town. So there was also a lot of personal attacks for not covering my face and for speaking out at city council. Right. Meetings. And for me, I can't imagine not speaking out, you know, like people say it's so courageous and I'm like, is it? It's just what's right. Like, why yeah. aren't you doing it? If if right. more of us did, this would have, you know, I remember when it started here with the forced face coverings and I would tell people in town, like, look, if you don't say no to this, it's going to get way harder and more, way more slavey. Like, this is the easiest place you can stand up and we could shut this down right now. And it was shocking how few people, like I did not realize that humanity was this controllable and cowardly. Yeah. And like speaking out against this, I'm sure you never intended to be political. I'm sure you never wanted to be in politics. I'm sure this is the last thing you wanted. And it just kind of happened because you got sick and tired of it. Like most people are. Completely. And that was why I was speaking out so fervently around the social justice stuff when I started. It was, you know, me too, the trans stuff where I was like, they're dividing it like this is a deliberate plan and they're really yeah. trying to divide us. So we would be very smart to not take the bait and to not demonize one another. And that really pissed a lot of people off. The offer um, respect for one another's humanity uh, seem to be really triggering for people. And then it's, it's just escalated from there, but you're, you're totally right. No part of me wants to be political and it's a constant internal struggle for me because I find it boring. I find it toxic. Um, I don't know how much hope there really is, but I cannot stand by and watch this happen and not do what I can to safeguard humanity and to safeguard our freedom. Do you worry about the future of free speech and, you know, the idea of them criminalizing? I worry about the present of free speech. The idea of them criminalizing people and locking people up for it. I mean, they're already doing it in other countries, you know. 
I do my best not to worry because exactly. worrying is praying for what we don't want. And I don't want right. to energize that. Right. And like, I'm annoyed with the problems with free speech now. Like how many platforms I've been booted off yeah, of. And it's so annoying. Have. It's so annoying. It's super annoying. Um, yeah. Like I said, I don't, I think it's something that we would be wise to be mindful of and stand up for. And, and I've learned, you know, I think we've all learned for those of us who are awake to what I call the sham show. I feel like the past four years have been an accelerated evolution, right? Cause mm -hmm. I had to learn to shut my mouth in town when I was being bullied. Cause I didn't want to go to prison. You know, I had to learn to, get along in certain places. I, I'm learning tolerance for people who've made different choices, who have different allegiances, because this division thing is not sustainable. Like we're going to have to come together. But when it comes to freedom of speech, I have no tolerance. I have no tolerance for anyone who's living in America and thinks speech should be controlled. If you think that, great, move, leave this country, because this is a foundational principle that I will not give an inch to. And there is no argument for censorship that is going to work for me. I'm a woman. I am a Jew. I want people to be free to hate Jews, hate women, call me a bitch, call me a kike. I will fight to the death for your right to say whatever you want to say. That's, that is what has made this country, the ideals upon which it was founded work. And I say that like work, right? Cause I, at this point I'm questioning, like, was it a psyop to begin with? But growing up here, it allowed me to be a very expressed, open, free thinking, badass woman. And I've traveled a lot. And I know that given the world, um, that that's a rare privilege. So I'm not willing to give that privilege up on my watch that I'm not okay with that. Amen. Very well said. And speaking of free speech, you know, you mentioned the whole transgender thing a little bit ago. If you talk about them on social media, you're pretty much getting banned. Um, I've been suspended, suspended for talking about, you know, different things in the trans community are making arguments, making valid points. So it, it really, it's yeah, we're at war with, with having opinions. I mean, we can't just speak out against things. We can't, we cannot. I mean, it, and these, these protected classes, these protected groups that, you know, they're exempt and you say anything about them, you're going to get punished. Even if they're, even if they're wrong, even if they're, you know, groping up against children, even if they're humping children, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're wrong. They're exempt. They've, they've created this victim box scenario and um, for these people. And, you know, they're automatically, you can't touch them. You can't. Right. I'm, I mean, I'm not willing to roll over. Like I say whatever I want. My right. words are free. Right? right. So I've, you know, and I've learned like, okay, so I'll say it on Odyssey. I'll say it where I can. Right. I find what's most frustrating about the trans op is yeah. that, the psychos behind the op don't care about trans people. No, they don't. It's all about the money. It's all about the money and control. And shoving them into the Western medical paradigm and getting them hooked on all the pharmaceuticals. Like it's not right. a loving thing. And yeah, I mean, yeah, all of that is frustrating, but I won't play. Like I'm not, I say what I want. I, you know, if someone asks me my pronouns, it's, it's some version of like Trump mm -hmm. one or, you know, something really stupid, like 
I feel like the biggest thing for those, like we have to continue to be squeaky wheels. Anyone who's talked about mass psychosis, you know, ideological subversion, communist takeover, whatever it is, is that um, the, the, the oppositional forces have to their perspectives alive. We can't let it go. So as annoying as it is, like there are times where I, of course, like I don't always want to be the squeaky wheel. Like it would be nice to just get along. Um, but we can't normalize this, you know, normalization is the very last stage in ideological subversion. So I think it's important to speak out. We can do it kindly. We can do it lovingly. Um, but to not roll over for these protected classes, for these attempts to control speech. No, not, I will say what I want. And the transgender movement, what do you think it's doing to women? and it's an attack on women they hate women it's a war on women and the fact that women don't see that is insane to me i wrote an article about as i i mentioned the trans the gender reassignment surgery article back in you know i researched it in 2011 it came out in 2012 Mm -hmm. and i interviewed multiple trans women because i was genuinely curious right like i'm a loving compassionate person So it was weird to me when I would see people in town with giant Adam's apples and big hands wearing like sequined mini skirts and heels. And I noticed that I would contract. So for me, the way that I roll in my life, it's like, well, if I'm having a contraction around something, I know I need to step into it so that I can learn more so that I can understand. I really wanted to understand why this was a positive thing for these people. So I asked a bunch of trans women, how are you defining woman? And they all got triggered and I never got an answer. Oh, and this was way before Matt Walsh. And it was like, well, do you think you're a woman because you like bras and mascara? Is that your definition of women? Because I can see how someone could make a, be confused given how there's such a fetishization of those objects and those you know, aesthetics in our culture, but I never got a straight answer. Um, And I think ultimately it is a war on women. It's a way of culture saying, we hate you women. We don't have any respect for you. We don't care about your safety or your comfort because you're irrelevant and your only worth is your tits and ass as we're seeing by these trans women who are being elevated and winning all these women of the year awards. It's, it's, peak clown world yeah and this whole trans surgery scenario is the new abortion with how much money it's making they're making a ton of money doing all these procedures good lord and then it's just going to keep evolving it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger once you have something like this going it doesn't slow down more people get ideas more people jump aboard the train And then, yeah. And you look at like this, and I I cannot stand the weaponization of the word privilege and how how that's wielded. But you like, you think of peak privilege. Like there are people on this planet who don't have clean drinking water. There are people in this country, in Flint, Michigan, who don't have clean drinking water. Like we have legit problems. How much money and energy and resources go into the gender reassignment industry? Right. Like we don't have bigger priorities on the planet for the benefit of humanity than this, than than men shaving off 
parts of their jawbone to look more like women. Like that is completely insane to me. That's fine if you feel like you've been born in the wrong body. I don't know what that feels like. And I have respect and compassion, but why do you need to undergo all these operations? Like, okay, just claim, just claim what you are and move on with your life. Like why bring Western medicine into this? Do you think they really care? And we're seeing them on the cover of Sports Illustrated. We're seeing them on the cover of all these different magazines. We're seeing them, you know, disrupt sports, uh, high school, college, even professional levels. Crazy stuff. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a, we, we have a lot of um, opportunities <laughs> to upgrade. <laughs> uh, and then like the future of sports. I just wonder where this goes, where this leads. It, it can't be good. I mean, it's, ugh. There's, and there's no, there really is no stopping it. I mean, there's, there's ways to maybe slow it down a little bit, but it's, it's inevitable. I feel like. I disagree. I, and again, I go back to, we have so much more power than we realize. And especially when it comes to the almighty dollar, right? So if they let men into women's sports, stop giving our money. You know, like say no. Um, I think there's so much we could do with our voices and they want us to think it's inevitable. Same with AI and the push to automate, right? Like none yeah, of that right. is inevitable. We, right now we could say, no, we don't want this. Who cares that you right. can do this? We can actually have right. a collective conversation and decide this isn't in our best interest. If we had sane people in the conversation. Um, I think the key is for those of us who know this is ridiculous to speak speak out because I know so many people in my life who are like, I agree with you, but I don't really want to say anything. That's a problem. That's a problem. You, we all need to say stuff and we can do it respectfully and compassionately. I know trans people. I'm always kind and respectful. You know, I don't have issues with any of the individual peoples. I have issues with, you know, I call them the nefarious fucktards behind the psyops who are using these people as body armor for their psycho agendas. So I think that the light is absolutely on our side, but it's going to take everyone being brave and using their voices and saying, no, I'm not okay with this. You know, simply like go to Whole Foods, asking for the manager saying, you know, I'm not cool with these self-checkout. I'd really prefer if you'd bring in more actual human beings. Thank you so much for passing it along. Like enough people do that that will have an effect. You know, um, my local hot spring where they let m biological men into the women's room, letting them know, I don't feel safe coming here. When you change your policies and respect women's spaces, let me know and I'll come back. Right. Right. And all these, all these different laws and legislation that's going into place by these corrupt politicians, it's bad news. It's bad news bears. It's more and more radical every day. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I don't know what to do about that because it seems like there's such a lock on it. Um, I feel like one of the issues that we're up against as Americans is our comfort, you know, and our complacency and no one wants to make waves. So it would be nice for us to evolve past that and be willing to be uncomfortable for a short period of time because the stakes are really high right now. And um, it's time to speak to our ideals and for our ideals and allow our comfort to take a back seat until we get on safer, saner ground. 
Yeah. And no, I agree. And, and Danny, um, with AI moving forward, what do you think that does to people and society and the universe? I mean, we already see what our smartphones do and social media, how addicted we are. I can only imagine what AI is going to do. I don't I feel like we need to say no and shut it down before it goes any further, which I've been saying for a long time. Like we talk about mind control and we talk about, you know, programming. I think this is like the final stage when they really have this in place, when this is implemented to the highest degree, how the elites want it. That's, that's the epitome of programming of mind control. They're going to have their way. So I would change that to if the elites were to get our way, this is how it would go. But again, right. I will not sign on to their nefarious plans by giving right. it my confidence, by languaging it with any sort of affirmative knowingness. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, worst case scenario, people sign on to it, realize how bad it sucks, and we roll it back. I hope it doesn't get that far. Um, Best case scenario would be that the grid goes down and anyone with a smart fridge, a smart lock, whatever, gets locked out of their house, can't eat, has no heat and realizes, oh, this is a terrible idea. I hear you. I hear you. And Danny, I want to ask you, what is the thing you are most proud of so far out of all your accomplishments, out of all your work? Oh, my God. It's such a, probably my new book. Um mm -hmm the language of betterarchy, because I feel like what has come through me, right? It's not mine mm -hmm. per se, um, but is an actual tool that um, can legitimately and simply get us out of this mess. Um, and I'm happy that I have something to give to humanity beyond just a complaint or a reflection where we're on the wrong track, but I have a solution that's like, here, pick this up, use this tool. Let's make everything better together. I love it. I love it. And before I let you go, um, any upcoming projects, anything you want to announce, anything you're working on? Um, thank you for asking. I have um, spent the digitizing my uh, pop propaganda course, and it is going to be launching in January for teens and grownups alike. So it's an mm -hmm. 11 module digital course that doesn't require mm -hmm. me teaching it live that will clue people in to how propaganda works, how media manipula manipulation works, how to safeguard their critical thinking, how to safeguard their empowerment, their confidence, their self-esteem, and um, come together to create a better game. Real quick though, explain what that does to somebody's psychosis, just with all the propaganda, with, with all of that, what you just mentioned. Explain what, what propaganda does to people's psychosis or yeah, what? Just like, yeah, like what it does to people's psychosis and how you're helping people to fix that. But I can only imagine what it does to the brain. Well, um, I start off, the course starts off like explaining how propaganda was used by yeah. the Third Reich, right? And right. then it gently guides people through it so they can start to make the connections to what's happening today. Right. It also, um, groupthink and right. how, you know, feeling the need to just go along with the herd, how mm -hmm. that works against us. Mm -hmm. And then cluing people into like just the subtle ways that they're being manipulated by, you know, like I'll give you an example. I just made a video about this. It hasn't come out yet, but mm -hmm. I was watching a recent interview with Aubrey Marcus and he says, you know, 
we're going to need a one world government and we all know it. So taking away the ridiculousness of the first allegation, we're going to need a one world government, total lie, total globalist propaganda, but then he throws in and we all know it. So many people that functions as mind control. Oh, I'm a fan of Aubrey. I subscribe to his channel. He's telling me this thing that's weird, but then he says, we all know it. And I don't want to be one of those people who's stupid and doesn't know it. So I'll just go along. So cluing people into how those tiny moments coming through the media function as mind control and exist to steal our agency and our empowerment. Wow. Did that make sense? I hope. No, no, absolutely. No, it totally made sense. And like how many people so far have you worked with on this whole thing? Like on these courses? I think at this point, probably 40 to 50 and they're all, it's so sweet because it really, it's a transformational course. Like they come out of it with a different understanding of media, a different understanding of this matrix construct. And the reason that I made this course, I recommend um, for teens 14 and up. And a lot of times I have parents wanting to, you know, enroll their 12 year old or their 13 year old. And I'm like, of course you can. But in this course, I do teach people how the system is set up in a pretty unloving way. And so, you know, it's my preference that children's innocence is preserved as long as possible. But another piece of this course is cluing people into like, this is really how the world works. This is how the media is being co-opted. These are the entities funding the media. Look at, follow the money, you know? And so giving people a broader understanding of how this world actually works and why it's so important that we don't go along with their shenanigans. And how involved is the CIA with Hollywood and the government, the government with Hollywood. We're seeing so often how movies come out and then shortly after an event will happen and it's, it's predicting the exact scenario. Absolutely. They're super very, very, very involved at a very fundamental level. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, contagion was an example that came out like 10 years before the scandemic, but it perfectly depicts everything that happened, everything that happened. Like it's literally textbook. Like it's not even, yeah, there's like no difference. Like I couldn't even believe how identical it was. And there was the one that came out about the train derailment in Ohio. That one too. And that only came out like a couple days or weeks before it actually happened. Right. And look at all the movies about AI technology and robots that came out years ago that all this stuff is coming, becoming a reality now. Well, and that's the thing with all predictive programming is like the subconscious mind is so malleable and it's responsible for 95% of our experience of reality. So when you implant the subconscious mind, so that we would not have thought of on our own, that makes it infinitely more likely that that thing is going to manifest because now a possibility has been introduced that was never there before, which is why I always, you know, advise people like safeguard your attention. You know, why, why are you drawn to watching scary things, apocalyptic things, like violent things, worst case scenario, because 
Anytime we're giving our attention to those scenarios, we are casting our vote for them in our reality construct. So it's good to be mindful of where we're focusing our sacred attention. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say that it also feels like we've seen so many movies about surveillance from the government, that type of abuse of power. And now we're, we're pretty much the closest to that point we've ever been. I mean, in regards to them having control over our every move. I mean, you've seen the kind of things they want to put in place. I mean, they already have a lot of control, but they want full 100% control. Correct. Which is again, like I'm in the minority of just saying no and not willing to sign on. Right. Like right. I won't fly anywhere. I'm not doing facial recognition. I already don't oh, do yeah. TSA stuff. I just got a new um, YouTube. It's not a strike, yeah. but like it's something that I'm not hearing anyone else experience where they've. Oh, I've gotten so many strikes and so many channels banned. I mean, I don't even, I mean, I have a couple YouTube channels right now, but I've gotten probably five banned in the last couple of years and you get two or three strikes and then they're like, see you later. So but it's, my, a, it's a joke. It's, it's pathetic. It's absurd. They, they really restrict what you can say. And I feel like they have AI technology that pick up on words. Like you can't talk about vaccines. You can't talk about the Ukraine war. You can't talk about certain conspiracy theories. Like they really crack down. They totally crack down. And I got, so my last strike that I got for a Freeman Fly interview was like for medical misinformation. We never talked about vaccines. Like we, they were completely wrong, but there's no getting to a human because the weaponization of customer service is such a huge part of their plan. Yeah. But because of that one strike, now they've limited my posting privileges and I can no longer access transcripts of other people's videos, which is how I do my own work. Unless I get, I, I upload my ID and I'm like, yeah, that's not happening. Wow. Sayonara YouTube. So again, like we're at this point and I'm, I hear about this happening with some Amazon scam going on right now. Like that's the, that's the line for me. I'm not uploading my ID to use any of their surveillance technology. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important right now for those of us who know where this leads to hold a hard line and say, no, you know, this was my frustration during lockdown right. when I had friends who would cover their faces to fly. And it'd be like, why? You know, it's wrong. Like, if you all said no and instead decided not to fly, this would be done. Enough people would have opted out that the airlines would have lost too much money. But again, it's like everyone just, I've, I'm cancel clear to leave. I'm excited for people to stop selling their ideals and their integrity down the river for the sake of comfort. The sooner we all say no, we're not uploading our IDs. We're not giving them permission to X, Y, Z. Read the user agreements and say, no, PayPal, you lost me. Then we could shut this down. And the facial recognition is dominating in so many different areas. Like we're seeing banking, banking apps requiring it, dating apps almost everything on the smartphone, like it's crazy. I mean, and they're taking people's faces and who knows what they're doing with it. I, I can't think of anything good they'd be doing with it. You know what I mean? Like it has to be nefarious. It has to be bad. Um, it's the same with all this 
you know, uh, TikTok stuff. When people go on TikTok and make videos, I mean, I like watching TikTok videos. I, I haven't posted anything, but I've heard that when people are doing like the dances and movements, China is is gathering that data and they're using it for their own gain, if that makes sense. So yeah. when, when people, because China is so advanced on the AI and so advanced on technology, they can do a lot of stuff with, with you know, people's movements, people, the way people move their face, the way people move their hands. Um, and I also heard that China doesn't even show all the bullshit videos that America sees to their people. Like they only see educational things and it makes sense. I mean, they're, they're giving us all the, all the, uh, all the, just the garbage stuff, all the stuff that is filling people's heads with poison. Completely, completely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a mess out there. And I feel like we're at an edge. I My hope had always been that it wouldn't get as far as it's gotten. Um, and it, 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 it is an edge, right? So if I'm required to upload like an ID to access the internet, then bye-bye internet, you know? And I think yeah. it's important for us to not go along with the things that we know are wrong. Like I have a theory that the weaponization of customer service is the issue that could actually unite us because it's not a partisan issue. It's not political. It's affecting everyone, regardless of who they vote for, what injections they took or not took. Like it's affecting all of us the same, you know? So very simply, if we just simply boycotted the outlets that have no customer service, YouTube, Best Buy, you know, um, Meta, right? If there was a mass, like we're out of here, we're the ones who have the power. So I'm holding on to that vision. Um, and I'm inviting humans to meet me there. Love it. I love it. And, and you brought up something very interesting, how people need to say no to what's wrong. But in reality, people would rather have convenience and accessibility because most are lazy, I feel like. <laughs> I completely agree. That's why I feel like it's on Gen X to save the world because we're the ones who remember what it was like without all this stuff and that it was fine. Right. Was like we didn't need Siri telling us what to go, where to go in our cars. We had Thomas guides, like it right. was all fine. And I feel like we're kind of that last bastion who could hold that for humanity. Um, that it, it really doesn't have to be a problem if we're not all on smartphones. Very well said. Very well said. And by the way, you brought up that, smartphone situation people have lost touch with reality and they don't have face-to-face -face conversations anymore you go out in public everybody is on their phone everybody is glued to their device it, it really has destroyed civilization i mean i understand it's extremely convenient it's gotten people you know extremely far in various areas of their life but there's also cons to it major cons to it. And I like, I never bring my phone out in public with me. Right. Um, I don't bring it out into the world. Yeah. And I have, you know, when people are hanging out with me, I have a zero tolerance policy. So yeah. someone picks up a phone when they're with me, I'm like, not like I can remove myself and we can be done or you can have some courtesy and put your machine away. So again, it's just like calling people into higher integrity yeah. in our relatedness. And also, you know, like, and again, I'm, I'm looking forward to this working, but like I no longer go to my favorite hot spring in New Mexico 
because they have people in the tubs with the phones and it's like, I'm there in a bikini and someone's pointing a phone at me. No, that's not okay. And they also have all these cameras around and have started live streaming what's happening in the pools on the website. So again, it's like, you were my favorite hot spring for years and there's no way I'm giving you a penny while you're disrespecting my privacy to this extent. If I wasn't the only squeaky wheel saying this stuff, I feel like there would be more sanctity in our private places. So for anyone who's listening and this resonates, like, please use your voice to invite, you know, more consideration around how people are using these machines. Oh, for sure. 100%. I love having you with us, Danny. Let's get you back here soon. Thanks, um, keep up the great work and tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. Okay, so dannycats.com is kind of my umbrella website. It'll take you to my podcast, my Instagram, my pop propaganda course. Quantumlanguaging.com is where you can learn, learn more about working with me um, in a coaching capacity, consulting capacity, um, where you can get my quantum languaging books and all of those fun things. Sounds great. We'll have a great weekend. Happy New Year. Thank and, you, Rory. Uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Keep up the that good work. That sounds week. great. Thanks so uh, much. Thanks uh, for having me. All right. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. are back Rory Sodder and the news everybody it's been a fantastic show today I want to thank you all for tuning in I hope you have a fantastic New Year's celebrating we will see you all in 2024 got a lot of big plans until then I'm Rory Sodder God bless much love cheers everybody <laughs>